0: You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James.
1: Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This week, we return to our regularly scheduled programming with our uh, continuation of the sub series where we're going to talk about the history of Cuban cigars and joining me for this sub series as he's going to join me uh, for the rest of the year, I believe is Nick Siris, uh owner uh, and master blender. I know he loves that of LH cigars. Nick, welcome back to the program.
2: Thank you, James. Always a pleasure to uh, have a chat with you and to all the people that care about
1: cigars uh, that listen to your lovely podcast. Well, thank you. It is. I I do my best to make it lovely. Um, Have you re acclimated to uh, regularly, you know, regular non communist life now that you've been back? Yes, yes. Very much so. Uh,
2: Coming back from Cuba, I'm all back in the US mode. Uh, The love and outpouring I got from people that listened to the podcast has been absolutely wonderful. You know, it's the funny thing is a lot of friends, uh, people in the industry, their first question is, oh, so you've been back to the island. Tell me about it. And not to sound like a dick, but <laughs> it's like I've said that I've told the story so many times and everybody asked me the same question. And I started saying, listen, if you want to get a definitive answer but about what my experience was like on the island, going back after a two year hiatus, spend a little time. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. listen at three x speed. I don't care, but if you want to hear what's going on, this is it. You know, it's become the you know, I know it was a little discombobulated because I had so many different ideas that I wanted to get across. But I think the general gist of what I wanted to explain about going back to Cuba and the state of Havana and Cuba today, You know, I think I pretty much covered it. You know, I mean, there were parts that I wish I had covered as well that I didn't. But you know what? For the
1: most part, it went long, too long anyway, you know? (laughs) No, it was good. We had a lot of great feedback about that episode. Uh, Everyone seemed to enjoy it. Everyone seemed to uh, love it. You had a lot of knowledge. And it was, you know, here in the States, we don't get to see what Cubans go through on a daily basis. And we all know that you have a passion and a love for these people uh, and for their culture. And obviously for the cigars that they, that they are so most famous for, uh, but we don't get to see what it's like. And especially after the pandemic, things have changed so much that it was a real eye opener. And we got a lot of great feedback from our listeners. And so we appreciate that. Uh, you can go to simplystokies.com, leave a comment. You can leave a, a, a a review and a rating on iTunes or Google podcast. I think you call it Apple podcast. Now, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast from, wherever whatever platform you're listening to this on uh, and let us, you know, leave your comment there. I, I really appreciate it. And I know Nick does, too, uh, because he takes time out of his busy schedule to, uh, you know, stop by and chat with me for an hour or so and talk about all things Cuba. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the history of Cuban cigars. But before we do, like I said at the top uh, here three minutes ago, as we get into our uh, 30 minutes of of advertising, uh, which it's not. But then we'll have five minutes of subpar content, according to one reviewer. Uh, go to OxfordCigarCompany.com and you can pick up LH Cigars uh, and give them a try oh, if yes, you, you haven't. Can. And they please are. Please do. Yes, please, please. do. If you haven't checked out my review of the LH Claro, go to simply Stogies.com. You can check that out. Uh, I think I gave that a 948, I believe. And I gave the uh, Colorado a 901. Like these are fantastic cigars. There'll be a Maduro review coming soon. And then also a uh, Panzone review uh, coming soon. The Nick Panzone. Go, go check it out. Oxford use coupon code simply stogies. You'll get 15% off your entire order. That's right. 15% doesn't matter what's in your cart. Use coupon code simply stogies 15% and uh, enjoy some great cigars from, from Nick. I I, I'm telling you, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but your Claro is the bridge cigar between Cuban cigars and new world cigars. And it really does. It's been dubbed. it, It really does bridge that gap, Nick. It's, it's fantastic. I'd like to think so. I mean, you know,
2: cigars is what brought me to Cuba to begin with. My palate was always Cuban from the start. Um, So using that as a basis, you know, that's what my first cigars and blends tasted like. I still do like the Cuban, something about the Cuban taste, which is very difficult to try to duplicate. Um, You know, there's the earthiness and, and all the other things. I mean, the soil is very unique, so you're not going to get that without actually growing it there. But at least the essence, you know, I, I'm, I'm tired of hearing the word very Cuban-esque, very Cuban-esque. Every brand <laughs> likes to say their cigar Every brand. is Cuban-esque. I'd like to say it'll remind you or I'll have hints of something that I'll say, hey, you know what? This reminds me of a Cuban cigar. But For my Claro, and again, I don't want this to be a commercial on LH, at least not for the the hour, but (laughs) the Claro for somebody that likes Cuban cigars or anybody that likes a mild cigar, but likes flavor. I mean, the best compliment that I get are people coming up to me and go, you know, I normally never smoke, you know, Connecticut shade cigars, but I didn't know a, a Connecticut could taste like this. And that gives me a lot of warm fuzzies because... That's what I was going for, having a mild cigar that you can smoke, especially in the morning with an espresso absolutely, or any time of the day. But again, having those flavors and aromas without having all the excess uh, nicotine or strength that a lot of people enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with those as well. But
1: um, I just think it's a great bridge cigar. So go pick it up and try it. It's funny that you bring that up because on the latest episode, if you go to youtube.com forward slash Simply Stogie's podcast, I believe, or just search for Simply Stogie's uh, on on YouTube the latest episode of cigars and coffee I went back and I I smoked a uh Monte Cristo white series now not the Cuban Monte Cristo which right. we're getting ready to talk about them here I'm sure shortly uh but uh the uh the legacy brand by from Altadis altis whatever you pronounce them um and they like I remember when I first started smoking I was like okay I kind of get it I like this and I would smoke them in the morning uh with coffee but now that I've you know I don't want to say that I'm a grizzled uh, cigar veteran, but now that I've been smoking for a few years, you you just can't go back. (laughs) Your palate grows, and there really is almost no flavor, no taste. It's just cardboard and sadness. Well, a little bit of depression. It's
2: very mild. To be use a you know, it's it's not even (laughs) mild. It really, (laughs) it does lack a lot of flavor in my opinion, but there are people, you know, you're not hurting that brand because it's one of the most, you know, best-selling brands out there. But funny, when I talk to most of my friends that are not cigar smokers, they'll say, oh, what do you, you know, I'll say, oh, I smoke cigars. Oh, you do? What do you smoke? They'll say, oh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, okay. Or, uh, you know, Monte Cristo or or Cohiba. And they just throw out these names, but, you know, what their idea of smoking cigars is going on the uh, golf course. And I love to tell people (laughs) when they say, oh, you know, um, I'm a golfer and I'm a cigar smoker. I'm like, okay, so when do you smoke cigars? Oh, only when I'm on the golf course. Well,
1: eh, that's not really really a cigar cigar smoker,
2: but (laughs) uh, you know, listen, I like people smoking cigars whenever they can or want. Uh, If it only happens to be on a golf course, so be it, at least they're smoking, but it's difficult to go through the transition or journey of cigar smoking for people when they're only smoking, you know, very mild cigars on the golf course. And they're not giving any attention to what they're doing. It's, it's uh it's just something that happens to be in their mouth. And for the most part, I hate to say it, golf smokers, but a lot of them are just, they don't care what they're smoking as long as it's something in their mouth. And, and generally if it's free, you know, they'll smoke something, whatever (laughs)
1: they gave them. Uh, The best cigar is a free cigar.
2: That's it. But, You know,
1: it well, is it is. it'll be interesting because I wonder how much of this will get into how much cigars have evolved since they've been around. So let's just kind of jump into the history of Cuban cigars, because this is what Cuba is known for, like for all of their other things on the island and all the history that they've been through. Like Cuban cigars are what the island of Cuba is synonymous with.
2: Absolutely. I'm, that's exactly what I was going to say. When people think Cuba What's the first word after Cuba that comes up, and it's cigars. It's something that is absolutely synonymous, and it's been that way
1: for for ages, for a long time, yeah, a very long time. So let's start. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. When, because the indigenous folks of Cuba had been smoking tobacco forever. Yes, like there's Um, evidence that it started when in like the ninth century or something like that. Well, actually, there's uh, people that say that the tobacco
2: plants actually arrived from South America between 2000 and 3000 BC. Uh, There is no set date that tobacco growing in in Cuba can be pinpointed to, but that's generally what people are saying. Uh, When tobacco first arrived in Cuba, it was primarily only used for medical purposes, as well as being incorporated into their religious ceremonies, their social gatherings, Um, And it was later planted as an agricultural uh, crop for the widespread use of smoking. So a lot of people say Cubans invented cigars. And that's not really true because, you know, historians generally believe that the cigar was actually invented by the ancient Mayans. And um, there's been evidence of tobacco smoking by the indigenous people that dates back to the ninth century. But uh, archaeologists they discovered an ancient Mayan pot from the 10th century that actually depicts a Mayan man puffing on one of these very early forms of cigars. So, Now,
1: now the early yeah. forms of cigars, I would imagine, Nick, were probably just uh, leaves rolled up and smoke. Probably no drying process, or if so, No, maybe, no, 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 yeah. no, none of that, none of that.
2: You know, honestly, prior to our man, Christopher Columbus, the whole Western world, which is so hard to imagine – had no idea what tobacco was or what cigars were or smoking in general, but it wasn't until his big discovery of the new world back in the 15th century that uh, tobacco smoking came to the rest of the world. Now that tobacco plant was known as a word that everybody seems to have now synonymous with cigars. kind of drives me crazy because when somebody, especially in Cuba, everybody walking by and everyone goes, oh, cohiba, cohiba no, actually, it's not a Cohiba, but yes, I understand that's the only thing you know about cigars is the name Cohiba. Right. And even in the US, you know, you'd be surprised you're walking down and everybody seems to know the word Cohiba. Well, what people may or may not know is that the word Cohiba referred to the actual tobacco plant. And that is very significant because now the Cohiba brand is probably the you know the best known brand out there and it's only been around since 1966. but uh, the Taino um, natives, you know the uh, indigenous people of Cuba, they've been smoking it, and they're the ones that you know the, they were heard calling it Cohiba by Columbus and his scouts and they watched him smoking this tobacco. Which really was a very primitive form of a cigar. And it really all it contained was some dried, twisted tobacco leaves. But they used to wrap them in a palm leaf, uh, and that's before. Well, before that, they had this really odd looking. It looked kind of like a slingshot, like a Y with a tube, and the two open ends of the Y went into your two nostrils. And the other end is where the tobacco leaves would go. So it was kind of the early form of a pipe. But sure. instead of it going the smoke through your mouth, it would go right to your nostrils or into your into your um, nose. But I, this no, was I, the first experience of smoking tobacco that I, no, Columbus a, and his people saw.
1: I have a question that, because Columbus described it as, quote, men with half-burned wood in their hands and certain herbs to take their smokes, which are some dry herbs put in a certain leaf, uh, and then to to suck, absorb, or receive that smoke inside with the breath—were they inhaling these things? Yeah, okay. they probably were. Okay. probably were. <laughs> um, it was.
2: I mean, we don't know, but considering that in the early days, tobacco, you know, in cigars, I mean, difficult to inhale it, you know. But cigarettes became, you know, our machine-made cigars and all that came really quickly and. The tobacco smoke. I, I imagine that it was. I don't know. That's a I, good question. That I, I don't really know the answer. I've never run across it, but I think they probably were.
1: Well, I just they I want everyone were. to think of because if you've smoked for any amount of time, you you know what young tobacco tastes like. You you know that that flavor, and it's not the greatest. Now I want you to think of fresh tobacco, which is probably tastes a little bit better. I would imagine, but maybe not. And then just inhaling all of that smoke all of the time. Now, I know of a certain lounge owner uh, in in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, who inhales. And he said it on the podcast. It's Stacy from, uh, or not Capital, but uh, from Cigars with a Z, Cigars Lounge in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, where he will inhale every cigar ever that he smokes. And he smokes a lot. And he said he's always done that since he was in the Marine Corps when he first started smoking cigars for, you know, probably 30, 40 years. hope he gets checked out regularly. though. Yeah. That, that, is, that too, is some thick smoke. To, that's insane to me. Because every once in a while, I'll you know, I'll take a puff and I'll be talking with somebody and I'll inhale just a little bit of it. And I'm like, oh, God. And I used to be a, a cigarette smoker. And I'm still like, oh, God, that's just too much. Like, what did I what have I done? So I can't imagine doing that all the time but I digress that was a rabbit hole we didn't need to go down but I went down it anyway so Columbus basically can be credited with bringing not so much uh, cigars to the new world but the new world to well, cigars
2: back then it was the old world correct you know, it was considered well, the Old yeah, World. That's, but, that's, so yeah he can be credited uh, other people as well but you know he brought it back to his home country of Spain and uh, Spain and Portugal, you know, began to uh, let's just say that tobacco caught fire, man. It uh, it took flame. <laughs> pun, pun intended. <laughs> there was a roaring trade as tobacco and cigars became very fashionable in the old world, and uh, brought huge profits to their countries. So the Spanish really were the ones that can be credited for being the ones that developed tobacco and they were of course the only ones in the beginning that were involved with it in spanish colonies in south america were, were cultivating tobacco and even in the united states you know with uh Pocahontas, pocahontas's husband uh, he was the one who first started selling it commercially but getting back to the cuban cigars and cuban um tobacco um people don't realize that the first Factories and all, where all this all these uh, cigars were being made, was actually in Spain. See, as tobacco and the smoking grew in popularity across the whole world, um, Spain started really saying, "You know what? We we have to control this, and we're going to make this royal monarch uh, monopoly and make sure that nobody else can touch it." Like they just felt that tobacco was owned by the Spanish government. So, as much as they built it up, and it. Well, you know, it was all over the old world at that time. They almost killed the business at the same time because he made this decree in in uh, seventeen seventeen, known as the Tobacco Decree. I guess that uh, basically anything to do with tobacco, trading tobacco, tobacco products, everything had to go through the Spanish ports. And they really strictly enforced this control of the Cuban cigar industry and literally almost ruined it in the process.
1: Well, yeah, in, and, uh, in 1606, it was uh, Philip II. Um, he, he, uh, he, he condemnated and regulated it and actually banned uh, the civilian or the cultivation of tobacco in 1606. But in 1614, he lifted that, but then taxed the sh- ever loving shit out of it with Cuba receiving the highest uh, tax rate with any, so any tobacco coming from Cuba in 1614 and beyond was taxed at, at the highest rate of any of the other uh, tobaccos that may have been coming in at the time. So this isn't like, this isn't new for Spain uh, to, to try to regulate and control tobacco consumption coming specifically from Cuba.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, their cigar factories kind of sprouted all over Spain. The center point was kind of Sevilla, Spain. But uh, we're talking about the first factories uh, started popping up in 1542. But really, the production didn't really start to crank until, uh, you know, the six to mid 1600s. But because of uh, this ownership of tobacco, that's what almost killed it because they were just taxing. It was a big money revenue um, generator, obviously for Spain, but then the uh, Anglo-Spanish War happened in 1762 and somehow England was left in control of Havana for only about nine months. But during that time, you know, free trade flourished and uh, before a treaty could be signed, giving Spain control once again, after the whole thing happened, Cuban tobacco and cigars had made their way all over the world and the love affair of cigars and the world really began. So really, it wasn't until 1810 um, where the monopoly was lifted. Uh, because Fernando VII, as you said, of Spain, he started to allow free trade for the island in 1817. So it wasn't until the 1800s that things kind of really bloomed. And that's when everything really flourished. The um, 1800s was the, the real boom of cigars. Um, you know, Before that, of course, it was a monopoly. But after that, you know, they realized that people were loving it. Pipe smoking, all other types of snuff, everything related to tobacco was was being uh, was being consumed. But cigars is what we're concerned with. And that's what I'm going to talk about. And
1: there were there weren't any factories at this time in Cuba. Like you said, they were elsewhere. They were in Spain and elsewhere in the world. So they were. And to think about this, and maybe this is, and I don't know, Nick, maybe you can speak to this or not, but maybe this is where the aging of the tobacco leaf comes in because, you know, you're, you're going, you're going by ship and it's not very fast. So it's, it's, you know, months long trip where you have all this harvested tobacco that you're taking overseas by sailboat essentially. uh, And, and, uh, so it's aging while it's on the ship. It's probably been sitting at the port since it was harvested, ready to go in, in bales and bundles. And it sits there. And it...
2: uh, you're, you're, you're being too advanced. They're still not there yet. Uh, in the early 1800s is when they realized that actually that's why the, the factories were put in Cuba, because they realized that by rolling them first, they would not only make the big transatlantic journey across the sea, but actually um, they tasted better. So, and they were able to produce more. So that's Uh when the factory started propping in Cuba. You have to understand that by like 1850, 1859, there were over 10,000 tobacco plantations in Cuba and a whopping 1300 factories in the city of Havana alone. So 1800s was really the booming golden age for Cuban cigars. And that's when all these brands that we're familiar with today uh, kind of propped up, some that are still being produced today, and they all kind of established their business at that time. You know the big names that we know, like Partagas, Romeo and Juliet, uh, H. Uppman, That's when they all. Um, that's when they were all were propping up in the early 1800s. Now there's one little thing in history that a lot of people aren't familiar. The first private brand that actually defied Spain's renewed state control was a brand known as Cabanas. And that was established by Francisco Cabanas in 1797, which actually predates, you know, the big let loose of the Monopoly. So uh, that's kind of the first one that was the rebel brand. And Cabanas is actually considered to be the first registered handmade Havana cigar brand. Um, it was a popular name. It was, I guess, the Cohiba of its day. You know, in fact, in 1848, uh, Jaime Partigas, his first brand wasn't Partigas, but Flor de Cabanas. Um, so that was his way of trying to imply that his cigars were made at the Cabanas factory, even though it wasn't. They sued him (laughs) and they had to uh remove the Cabanas name. So the name that we know and is famous for now, Florida Tobaccos de Partigas y Companía, which we all know is just Partigas, uh, that's where it came from because he had to drop by a lawsuit the 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 name Cabanas. And then after that, we had poor Laranja in 1834, punch in 1840,
1: so things started rolling in the uh, 1800s. Okay. So Partagas is the longest, the oldest cigar manufacturer in the world. Right now, um, as far as it's still is still around. Is that is that accurate? Partagas is is the one? Um no. I
2: well, if you take the lineage out of it, I mean, we know that you know, Jaime Partigas started the uh, the factory. His ancestors that moved to um, you know when they left the island. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. You know that gentleman actually created <laughs> you know Macanudo and uh, some other great brands. But you know, Cuban cigars were being exported you know by steamship. And yeah, it took time. But I don't know the aging of the tobacco definitely was happening during that time. And I think. That's why they started tasting better because they were already rolled, and so there's like almost a second fermentation that takes place in a aged cigar. So it's not really fermenting anymore, but the aging of the tobacco happens
1: in that rolled state. And um, but it, it was better. Was it done on purpose? Were they, or was it was it an no, accident? Like, no, no, let's, it, let's, it, it, yeah, I don't, okay. I don't
2: believe so. I don't think they said, oh, let's, you know, leave. no, because if that was the case, they would have left it either in Cuba. Or in Spain, but as they would just take the leaves and just take them over and send them to their factories in Spain and have them rolled. Um, I don't think cigars back then were really um, any good. You know, it was just a matter (laughs) of smoking a product. And because there really wasn't much of a fermentation, if any, at that time, and how Cuban cigars now being exported around the world by steamship, the industry booming. And that's really when the fashion of cigars. That they started being associated with wealth and power, and to this day, that kind of we still enjoy that. Uh, you know, like the cigar represents, you know, the established person, the guy that likes the fire or gal that likes the finer things in life. You know,
1: that's kind of uh, where but, we are today. And not know, to the love affair, not to change the subject, but do you think that that mindset is changing a little bit? Because, and I mean that because. Cigars are now accessible to everybody. Uh, It it, it is still a status thing, and yes, you're still rolling up money and literally lighting on a fire. I get it, but more people today, from the middle class and even some in the lower class, can afford at least here in America, uh, can afford cigars. Do you think that is changing? Because this is, I, I would say, since the 1800s. That's the modern. We're we're in the modern history of cigars now, because now there's there's aging, whether it was on purpose or not. Uh, and and people were smoking it for because it is a, a status symbol not because they tasted, you know, as good as they do today. Uh, and we've had 130, 140, 150 years of experimentation and and you know the 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 seeds and the varietals and all of these things that, that these companies have done to make cigars better. But do you think that that is changing, Nick, that it, it's more accessible now and so it's not as much of a status or do you still think that those outside of the cigar culture, look at that and go, okay, this is a status thing.
2: I tend to think that people still really think of it as something, because even in America, I mean, a pack of cigarettes, I don't even know what they cost these days, but I know basically a pack of cigarettes is the equivalent of one cigar, of a premium cigar. So if you think about it today, the average cigar um, retail, the sweet spot is, you know, 10, $12, you know, for, for a decent premium hand-rolled cigar. If you think about it, that is a lot of money for people, you know. Still, uh, the average person, I should say. But I think today people are realizing, and, and here's why I believe the whole, uh, why the whole second boom happened with the um, Cigar Auto magazine. Here's the way I see it: when they were seeing the Cigar Auto magazine, and in, in the first issue, I. It's. What got, I'll be honest. That's what got me into this whole industry and business and love of cigars was because of that magazine. I, I credit uh, you know, Suckling and uh, his love of Cuban cigars and the writing about it in that first issue of Cigar Aficionado magazine. It just, it just brought me in. But for most people, what it brought people in is they you know inside that same magazine you had you know shows and displays of you know, affluence and, and uh, you know, large crazy mansions and, you know, these exotic cars that cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, the expensive watches and jewelry and all these other things that were advertised in that magazine, you know, with that cigar. So people, the average person that even makes minimum wage, you could say, you know what, maybe today I can't afford that car. Maybe I'll never be in a mansion of that sort. But you know what? I can still smoke the same thing the people that live in those houses and drive those cars smoke. So they will splurge. You know, let's say, you know, they're they're normally only buying very inexpensive cigars, but once a week, once a month, or however, you know, a special occasion, they'll go and splurge and pay the money for a cigar that and they'll appreciate it. And I and I think the good thing about that is they'll make a point of trying to appreciate that cigar, or learn about that cigar. And a lot of people get sucked in to this crazy uh you know love affair of cigars because they want to enjoy the cigar initially and they start to get that aha moment like I did after I had my first real premium cigar like I hey, I get this. There's something about this smoke that actually tastes good or these aromas they they're actually very Nice to smell and and these flavors that I'm picking up, you know, when you once you get that little light bulb in your head and that aha moment, you're hooked. And for mm-hmm. a lot of people, it never happens. And that's why they don't get the whole concept of why they should smoke cigars or why do people smoke cigars. But until that happens, um, you don't get it. And for most people, I still think there's you know, look, an 18-year-old kid can go out and buy a premium cigar and enjoy it. But <laughs> So, yeah, it doesn't have to be something that you need to be very wealthy or affluent to be able to afford, but generally the stereotype is still associated with it. And that's why a lot of people smoke those cigars to get or get into it to begin with. If you think about it, you know, it's so it's not like it used to be uh, in the 1800s for sure, but I still think people uh, associate cigars with you know, success and, you know, celebration and things like that.
1: Well, let me ask you this, and and maybe you'll know the answer to this, because so if if the cigar boom for Cuba really started, you know, early 1800s, mid-1800s, and all these companies are popping up and they're making more money, Cuba's always been associated. I think even during Cuba's heyday, you know, before Castro, it was you know it was the land of of where the rich would go play right it was the playground of the rich and famous yeah. right and, but the people of Cuba never really saw that i mean they No, no, they back, never then, s-
2: back then they did back they did. then most cubans were very very well off there was a very big middle class there was a lot of wealthy wealthy cubans back in the day we're talking you know the you know cuba flourished during the batista era you know okay, he might have been so- a ruthless a dictator, but the people had money,
1: you know. So, capitalism, so even before the, so then they were so then there wasn't this dichotomy that we see today between no, 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 all these all. rich not people smoking cigars. And when I say rich, no, I just no. mean they could afford the cigar and and right. what we see today in Cuba. So, even in the 1800s, like because there were what in in the 1800s, I think I read somewhere there were 10,000 tobacco plantations. Is that does that sound right? How many did you say? 10,000 uh, uh, tobacco. Fa- yes. 10, uh, yeah. 10,000. Pl- yeah, that's true. That's yep. that's insane to think about, because right now, how many plantations, tobacco plantations, tobacco farms are there in Cuba? Do you know off the top of your head? No, you, I don't. Could, but, could you but, estimate? But it's there's not 10, a lot of
2: micro No, it's not 10,000. I don't think uh, I really couldn't even give you a number. Um, It's not a lot. You know, um, a lot of them have been co-opted together by by the government there. So they kind of pull all their resources. So they're larger. See, the, right now in Cuba, there's two kinds of systems of um, of these tobacco plantations. There are the individual plantations, such as the Robina plantation that everybody is familiar with, or the Hector Luis Prioto, or these private farmers that are allowed to operate and produce tobacco from their own farms, but the majority of growing uh, tobacco regions kind of co-op together and form these. uh, There's an area, for instance, outside of uh, Havana called San Antonio. And it's fascinating because it uses the money from the government to be able to purchase all the things they need, like fertilizer and so forth. But then each one of these little farmers that used to have a farm kind of sit on a board and they basically pull all the money all the resources and they divvy it up like a corporation. Wow. And it's um so it's difficult to say and there's a bunch of those types of co-ops, but how many farmers are involved? I don't know. That's a good hmm. question. Uh, but definitely not 10,000. My my guess would be, you know, a, probably not a thousand is what I would think, but who knows? I mean, wow. Cuba is a very large island and there are a lot of growing regions. I'm really only familiar with the uh, Vuelta Bajo region, you know, the Pinar uh, del Rio city and uh, province, uh, the Vinales area. But there are very many other growing regions that are used in the in the creation of a uh, Habano.
1: So 1850s like this, the, these plantations are, are all, all over the place. And some of these brands that we're familiar with today start popping up. Like what's next? What's next for for the history of Cuban cigars uh, after that? I would imagine, you know, these farmers are figuring out, you know, how to actually run the farms.
2: The the 1920s saw a little bit of a dip in the cigars because that's when cigarettes became more popular and machine made cigars started coming in there and the whole machine process. So people were starting to just try to make more profit. And uh, some of the. I don't know what you want to call it. Like that was what where the money was at. So a lot of people were making machine-made cigars. So the hand-rolled cigars were seen as old school and lost a little bit of its, uh, of its luster until it was regained, of course. But for a while, the 20s, 30s, 40s wasn't so great, you know, for cigars in general. Um, the 50s, I mean, you know, the US was very big on smoking a lot of cigars, but the majority of them was machine- and there were premium cigars. And then, of course, the factories all kind of migrated to Tampa. Uh, and that's where the majority of Cuban cigars were, were rolled. And that's definitely a, a part of the history of uh, of Cuban cigars. Yeah, was so one really point, Tampa was
1: the, Tampa yeah. was the uh, cigar rolling capital
2: of the world. Yes. I mean, the 20s was when, you know, the cigar making machines were introduced to Cuba. Um, and then really from the 20s till the late 50s, That was really what was being sold, you know, uh, in the US, the fifties, it was very synonymous cigars and the green cigar was really what people, if you saw an image of a cigar, if you asked somebody to to describe a cigar for you, it would be the candela wrappers as we know today, because most cigars that were being consumed by Americans. And again, we were the largest consumer probably even then as well um, was (laughs) this green cigar, but it was really, you know, the fifties and sixties. When the whole, well, we also know, you know, 1959, what happened then? The revolution occurs. They ousted, you know, the corrupt president, Batista. And then Fidel Castro takes control of Cuba under his regime. But what happens at that point? 1960, he nationalized the whole Cuban cigar industry. Actually happened on September 15th, 1960. That's when things changed a lot that's when the big split happened so you really have Cuban cigar history prior to 1960 and then after 1960 the big split as really there's you know there's the before and after the 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 BC and the ad right you know everybody's familiar we don't have to go into the history of uh, Castro and the rebellion but the impact on the the uh, Cuban cigar industry that is what's very fascinating after he nationalized the industry, most of the Cuban cigar makers left the island because they just you know, they took over all the factories and uh, some did take some of the you know tobacco seeds and we have the the famous uh, embargo that was set place in 1962 uh, and had the story the famous story where he wouldn't sign the embargo until he had his uh, press secretary Pierre Salinger secure his uh, favorite Cuban cigars for his you know personal consumption right but. That's a big famous story. But really, after that, the exiled cigar makers, uh, they went to back to their countries because a lot of uh, it seems like a lot of people from the cigar world come from uh, the Canary Islands. And the reason for that, because I was always curious, you you know, Cuba was a big migration point like the U.S., for a lot of different people and majority were Spaniards and people from Spain and Portugal and stuff. But the Canary Islands, the reason they came into play is they really needed um, people to roll the cigars. The slaves were very prominent in in, uh, Cuba, but they didn't use slaves, which you'd think they would for something so laborious um, because a lot of people at the time, the plantation owners They didn't believe that a slave would be able to roll a proper cigar. And the reason for that is they felt that really only a free person would be able to take enough pride to be able to handle the leaves that would need this gentle required touch. So where'd they get their workers? A lot of immigrants came from the Canary Islands and they were brought not only to work the fields, but roll the first cigars. So a lot of our ancestors of cigars were not only Cubans, but Canary Island Cubans. Hmm. So that's the tie because a lot of people always wonder, hey, you know, what's this tie with the Canary Islands? So, anyway, a lot of people went back to the Canary Islands. Once, you know, Castro took over, they were trying to figure out what they were going to do and where they were going to grow their tobacco or even be in the same business. So, where did they go? They went to Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua. And they discovered that a lot of the soil of these other countries possessed familiar characteristics, but you not know, it, it's not, not, the, not same the same thing. No. Not the same. They took their brands with them and they started their trademark battles in a lot of cases. But um, you know, it, it's it's still ongoing. You know, one of the first outside of Cuba was the Monte Cristo brand taken by the Menendez family. They moved it over to the DR, um, which is where most of the cigar brands really took off um it was the dr you right. know you had the h Upman there the romeo and juliet everybody was kind of in
1: in the uh, in the dr for a um, while uh, jamaican tobacco was the in thing um, yes. which i find odd because that's that's not a thing i mean i know there are still some but it's not certainly not what it was before, but there are still some Jamaican tobacco factories there.
2: Yeah, there is. Sure. The Royal Jamaica, uh, Jamaicans still uh, make cigars there. And there are uh, Macanudo makes uh, cigars from, you know, tobacco from Jamaica. So yeah, Jamaica, there's a lot of countries and you, know, you got to remember tobacco's a weed and like <laughs> Nicaragua back in the seventies, eighties would have been unheard of to, to what, cigars from Nicaragua. The way you're saying about uh, Jamaica, like nobody thought, even in the early nineties, I remember smoking my first Nicaraguan cigar, a de Nicaragua, which is really the, the first brand there. And I remember how strong it was and I'm like, oh my God. But my theory is that, you know, all the uh, expats from, from Cuba, when they tried to make Cuban cigars or cigars in, in Nicaragua, they would take their formulas and their processes that they used and uh, they didn't really take into account how much the soil there is so different. You know, it's such a volcanic, mineral-rich right. soil that requires so much more fermentation. So they would do whatever the process that they used in Cuba. Okay, it says five months, no problem. And they weren't taking into account the difference in the soil or what needed to be done. But since the early nineties. And today, Nicaragua has really come, you know, a long way as in a lot of people's minds, the forefront and the the number one country of tobacco because they figured out what they needed to do and how to make that tobacco taste and smell the right way. Now, that doesn't take away from Cuban cigars because the most of the world still says that Cuba is still the the premier and the number one cigar out there. And, and uh, you're not going to change the world's opinion of that. Uh, overnight. But the beauty is that today, you know, US citizens, well, up until Trump changed where you (laughs) couldn't buy, you used to be able to buy Cuban cigars outside of the US, of course, and you could uh, make your own debate and really figure out, do you like Cuban or non-Cuban? What I like to say about that, a lot of people ask me every day, what's your favorite? Is it Cuban? Is it non-Cuban? And I go, it really doesn't matter what my favorite is it's all about your individual palate and taste buds and if you're used to smoking <laughs> you're a politician brand ABC, you're no, a politician no, no, no not at all this is this is how i believe um because that's why you know you're talking about reviews and it's all great to use as a guideline sure. but reviews in general are the you know the thoughts of your palate in, in your case subjective it, it doesn't it, it's very subjective it's so individualized you know, you can uh, you can give the same cigar to 100 people and you're going to get 100 different 100 opinions different, if they're not checking with the other 99. Yep. What I see happen out there is people want to feel that they're in the in the same no. So if somebody says, hey, this cigar is great, everyone goes, yeah, it's great. It's great. It happens all the time. If they say this cigar is terrible, they're going, oh, yeah, it's terrible because they don't want to be the guy that says no yeah, right i call it this is my theory about cigars and the cigar industry i call it the emperor's clothes yeah because nobody wants to admit that maybe this guy doesn't know what he's talking about but he oh. seems to be the guy that's the mouthpiece and he says <laughs> so he must know what he's talking about so i would be a fool if i go man the guy's not even wearing clothes why are we
1: even talking about this i readily admit nick that i know jack and or shit about cigars like i write these reviews and i'll give you a, i'll give you a great example because i think this is a a fun topic kind of goes into the history of cigars because i want to ask you a very specific question about cigars But, you know, for me, I I just did a review on uh, the lithium Lancero from Jake Wyatt Cigars. Mm -hmm. And I love the lithium Toro. I love the lithium Bellicoso. I've done review. I I did a review on the Toro and I gave it a it was in the nines. It was a very, very good cigar. And so I was very excited for the for the Lancero. Well, all four out of the five Lanceros that I got, one of them was literally unsmokable. It would not stay lit. I couldn't get through the first third. It was very underfilled. Two of the other three were underfilled to the point where it would go out when I got to the final third. And I'm like, I just don't even want to relight it at this point. And only one of them smoked perfect. And I say, it's a subjective thing. Like your experience may vary, but this is my experience with it. Like, and I, I will go back and I will revisit it. but that
2: experience you can actually say that goes, you know, not to disparage any brand out there, but You know, consistency and quality is part of a cigar brand, more importantly to me than anything else, because the idea of what I like to say with my brand and one thing I can readily say, and I think most people today's day and age can say that, you know what, whether or not you particularly like my blends or the taste of my cigars, the one thing I can assure you is you're going to have a very entertaining and enjoyable experience of smoking that cigar because it's going to be well yeah. manufactured and that's half the battle it's more than half the battle so that's today there's no excuse why a cigar cannot be properly made okay things happen it's a I natural I, product it's made by hand yeah. so there's always things that can happen and it's but a lancero for the most part you shouldn't
1: like you don't you don't have any lanceros in your portfolio do you of course i do my Lanceros are, are,
2: are amazing. Um, <laughs> why have I not the, tried an Lancero? The Lancero <laughs> uh, Vitola is historically, uh, in the last 20, 30 years at least, the least selling um, Vitola, right, but, at least in my aficionados portfolio. aficionados
1: go nuts for it, and I don't know why, because none of them buy it.
2: Okay. Why do people smoke Lanceros? Why they should
1: smoke Lanceros? To taste I the wrapper. I, think, I well, think they think to t- t- taste the wrapper.
2: No. Here's why. Generally, when people make a blend, they use a very small Vitola, like a Lancero, a Corona, a Lonsdale, because the core blend consists of the basic leaves that make up the Seco, the Velado, the Ligero. And, I'm, you know, I'm going to get in the history of making cigars, but right. I mean, the theory of it, but each cigar leaf represents something to that blend and it does something, you know, there's, there's leaves that are designated part of the, uh, part of the plant that are there strictly for aroma, strictly for combustion, strictly for strength. And then the wrapper, you know, goes on top of it. And yes, on the thinner, because it's a matter of geometry, you know, if you have a thinner cigar, the wrapper is going to represent a larger percentage of that cigar's total leaf
1: Yeah, I I, I always uh, use the analogy like it's like a burger. Do you want more meat or more bun? Yeah, but the reason why people or purists go
2: for Lanceros or thin gauge cigars is because the core blend is represented in those leaves that are in there. Now, also more importantly, you talked about you know, the potential we have specific people in our factories, as as do most people, I think, in who, factories, roll, who roll just Lanceros yeah. because the position of the leaf is so critical. And when you have a smaller uh, diameter, it's it's much more you have less cha- your error your can be very, you know, smaller because, right. you know, with a bigger, a bigger gauge, you have more room to move around or to put it in if it's off a little bit here or there it's not as critical. Uh, In a Lancero, it's very critical where those leaves are positioned and there's less filler leaves. So basically when somebody creates a blend, usually people blend with a small, like I mentioned, with a smaller gauge cigar, unless a specific cigar size is blended for a blend and that happens too. But for the most part, if you're going to create a blend for a line of cigars, you start with the thin gauge and you work your way from there. Uh, Blending for the particular size of the cigar that's coming out next or the next size you're making. So that's why it's so critical in the Lancero or the thinner gauge cigars, the position of the tobacco and the way that it's rolled. All right. So since we went down this rabbit hole,
1: I'm going to ask this question, Nick, because I I don't know who else to ask and I can't find the answer anywhere. So maybe you'll know. And I know this probably has nothing to do with the history of Cuban cigars unless they're the ones who started it. Cigars are always uh, re, as someone who's been doing reviews now for a couple of years, and and we break it up into the first third, second third, final third. Who did that? What, what who, is it? The who blenders who went? We want the first third to taste like this, the middle third to have a transition, and then the final third to have a transition. Or is it literally just people like me with with our heads so far up our own ass that we're like, oh no, there are transitions here. Like who can't like. Where did this start? Where did it come from? Do you know? Well, transitions uh, happen in cigars and should happen in cigars
2: as they change. I think the whole idea of the thirds started just from reviewers saying, okay, the first, like they just broke it up. I guess they could have done quarters, but it would be or half. about more thing or halves. Right. Halves would be less of a change because it's it should be… A transformation um, or a transformation of the tobaccos as it goes down. Now, the position of the tobacco is very critical. Um, a lot of people don't know when they break up the cigar where they put the leaves. They literally put, you know, they take the ends off the the top and the bottom and fill it in the middle to try to give it more of an even blend across the the front. But yes, the way that the cigar transitions has a lot to do with the size point. That's why people, why do people smoke Robustos and not Toros? I'd rather smoke a Toro. Okay. So the reason for most people is it's a, it's a time thing, right? You know, you have, you know, you're going to smoke a Toro, you need X amount of time. A Robusto is going to take less time to smoke. because It's generally shorter and thinner. Exactly why I smoke a Toro. I want more time. Okay. But, but how different does the, the tobacco taste? Just from the literally from, let's say, just being an inch shorter, because why? Because of the smoke from the point of ignition to where it has to travel up through those leaves to get to your mouth, it's shorter. So that's going to affect the taste and the smoke transitioning through those leaves. So the longer, thinner is going to have a different taste again with a lot more wrapper. Oh. I will say this about the wrapper. One thing I did have a nice discussion with um, one of the blenders in Cuba this last trip. The biggest difference, because of course I was letting them try my cigars there. I always get a kick for them trying non-Cuban cigars and their reaction. Um, And they actually they were surprisingly uh, very surprised that they liked it. No, they actually liked it. It was it was so different. And the guy was amazed and I was giving him one of my Nick line, which is generally a more medium, medium plus cigar. And for Cubans, that means full body. And I thought, oh, this is going to kill him. But I was doing it on purpose instead of just the Claro. Of course, I started him with the Claro, which is the Connecticut shade one, But and they would smoke this. And of course, they would comment on how well it was constructed and the way that it formed. But the big thing that their eyes blow up on is the wrapper. And the biggest difference between Blending a Cuban cigar versus a non-Cuban cigar is wrapper. I can tell you this. Some people may say I'm wrong and may tend to disagree with me, but I say, and I stick by it. The wrapper in a Cuban cigar represents so little in the the form of taste of that cigar. You could literally peel off that wrapper and see very, very little Difference in the smoking characteristic of that cigar, and I learned years ago by mistake because you know the the because the wrapper in Cuba is so flaky and thin, you know uh, it comes off pretty easy and it can be damaged. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want to waste this cigar, so I you know I smoke without the wrapper and I go, you know what? I really there's not much difference in taste. And again, I wouldn't say that about all Cuban cigars, but certain ones, and the taste did not change that much. Now try that with a non-Cuban cigar. (laughs) <laughs> no wrapper is going to make that cigar totally different. In my
1: opinion, not smokable. I would not want somebody to smoke any of my well, cigars me, if the me, wrapper was not on it. Let me ask you this, because when you're talking about a Cuban cigar, you're talking about a Cuban Puro, right? It is Cuban filler, Cuban uh, binder, Cuban wrapper. So right. with a lot of non-Cubans, it is fillers from you know, other, it's not a Nicaraguan Puro, unless it's a Nicaraguan Puro. It's not a Dominican Puro, unless it's a Dominican Puro. It's usually uh, a, a blend of different, different leaves and I think that's, for me, that's where I find a lot of the more interesting and uh, complex and nuanced, nuanced flavors in a cigar is when it's that blended tobacco more than I do when it's a, a Puro. But if you did that with a Puro, with a Nicaraguan Puro or a Dominican Puro or a Honduran Puro, would, would you have that same experience where you're not Gonna notice the difference, like you don't. You'd absolutely
2: notice it. Absolutely
1: notice it. Why?
2: Why is that? Because the wrapper in Cuba, the way that it's grown, it's there. Even in the blender's mind, it's more of an aesthetic thing. It's like it looks nice. It's beautiful. It's silky. It's fine to the touch. Um, but it has very little to do with the actual flavor of that cigar. I mean, it has a percentage, but very small. Whereas any other country or any other tobacco from any the the wrapper just has more. You know, the, just the way wrappers are categorized in Cuba and grown, they they just don't represent a lot of it. You know, and it's that's very true. I I, I encourage somebody to try that. I mean, I don't want I don't know if you want to ruin your Cuban cigar, but if you get a damaged cigar. <laughs> A Cuban cigar, or even a non-Cuban, try smoking it and what the difference is. And it's crazy where a non-Cuban—I don't care what country the tobaccos come from—if you take that wrapper off, and again, it's going to vary from brand to brand. Some people, you know, the wrapper represents a lot more. That's why I remember I've done these podcasts where people—we we spent a whole. You know, podcasts just talking about the rappers and the significance of rappers and what they do and the percentage and all that. And some people there, there's statements being made out there where a rapper represents 90% of the cigar's flavor. And of course, that's crazy. And then there's other people that say, Oh, it represents 10%. And and the, in my opinion, the answer to that is it's different with every cigar. Yeah. And not only the geometry effects, but even every brand. Like in in my Nick and Jim rapper which I call it the Nick and Jim wrapper, which is my Vuelta abajo uh, seeded Ecuadorian first used in the Nick and Jim blend that I make for Jim Robinson. Now I use that same wrapper in my Nick line of cigars. And I particularly love that wrapper because it offers so much flavor, but with a sweetness that I still have not been able to duplicate in some of the other wrappers that we grow in Ecuador. Um, and I've we use the Habana 2000 seed. We use the Criollo, the Corojo. We use them all, but the sweetness that comes off of that, it, I love. And so for me, the nick line, the jewel of that line, is really that wrapper. Um, where in the LH line, the wrapper represents a lot of the flavor and is what differentiates a lot of the taste differences between the three lines that I have. It's not as critical as that that uh, the nick line of the, that wrapper, that right. dark oscuro very very rich yeah. wrapper. So yeah, the wrappers are very important to a cigar in Cuban cigars, they just represent less. You know, I think they're just designed and the statement that we should end with is that they're just designed for aesthetics in most Cubans mind. And it was reassured by the guy that I was talking to there who told me, yeah, that's the main reason that he sees when they blend a cigar, they don't really put a lot of time effort and thought into the, into the wrapper part of it. It's just aesthetics. So
1: I wish they'd put more time and thought into not making plugged cigars. Uh, But that's well, that's that's a whole nother conversation, a whole different conversation, which we will uh, eventually get into. And I know we went down a a couple of different rabbit holes, but we, we did get to the, to the, to the big change, which was in the 1960 when uh, uh, Castro took over and really, that's modern cigars now is is where they're at. they've They've gone through uh, at least as far to my knowledge, you can correct me if i'm if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think they like a long time ago, uh, Cuba went through their uh, all of their their uh, tobacco that had been aged and was being fermented properly. And now, eh, you know, sometimes you'll you'll get some young tobacco um, with, with Cuba, although I think that's changed in the last couple of years. I'm not really sure why.
2: Well, you know, it got a bad rap and, and, a, and, a, and rightfully so actually. So maybe it wasn't a bad rap. There was a real problem time, um, you know, in Cuban cigars, you know, since the, the 60 years since Castro took over, we're talking six decades, there's been a lot of transitions, you know, you know, with the nationalization uh, came a concentration of resources. And then a lot of these brands were eliminated, you know, Dunhill and Davidoff, they went off. Now, Zeno Davidoff, man, that guy was, in my opinion, so smart because he saw the writing on the wall and he went to the Dominican Republic while he continued to make cubit cigars all the way through the nineties.
1: How did he get permission from, from Castro to do that? He
2: was the only one that was allowed
1: because you know what he
2: left before he left before the embargo happened. And he said, you know what? I think Dominican Republic makes, you know, that soil is better for cigars, but if that was true you know, then he, would, <laughs> right. he wouldn't have continued to make Cuban cigars. or well, I think people wouldn't have had them, um, would have smoked them. But yes, um, you know, that brand is one of the premier brands out there. And Dominican Republic is one of the premier countries outside of Cuba that make great, you know, tobacco. But how did he get permission? I believe is because he asked for permission before everybody left. You know I mean, I saw the agreement was done before everybody. He didn't just leave. When every every other company um, was nationalized, he had asked ahead of time if he can continue to do it, I think, and that's why. Again, somebody from Davidoff probably has a better um, version of that historic contract between Fidel and, and the Davidoff company, but I'm sure it has something to do about for whatever reason he liked them you know if he do a thing. He, if he liked you you know he was okay with you if you didn't
1: you know well i mean look at the look at the cohiba brand i mean i think that's a a, a very good uh, uh like that encapsulates what Castro was like he loved cohibas that's how what that's why cohiba became synonymous uh with cuban cigars or just cigars in general is because well, well
2: let's 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 backpedal a little bit since we're doing history of cuban cigars let's talk about the history of cohiba Cohiba, I mean, there's been books written about the history of Cohiba, but let me try to summarize. You said, because Fidel Castro loved Cohibas. Fidel Castro created Cohibas. That's his brand. He made it. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, in 1966, Fidel Castro appointed Cohiba as his personal brand because he was rolled now that there's different people that are credited with uh, being the creator of his blend of this original Cohiba blend. Uh, One was his uh, chauffeur. Another was Avelino Laura. Uh, There's like three or four. I have a book on my shelf somewhere about the whole history of of Cohiba, and maybe I should have looked through it before (laughs) I, I gave this talk. But off the top of my head, 1966, he he started to smoke these cigars that his driver gave him, and he said, "Hey, I love these cigars. Where'd you make them? Oh, I got this person." So he decided, right then and there, that he was going to create his own brand that was going to be rolled just for him and for dignitaries and VIPs, and he started the Cohiba brand. He one of the nationalized properties, which today is known as the Leguito factory, was a mansion in Siboney that it looks like no other factory in Cuba. And it literally was a big house that they converted. And he was one of the first people that decided that, you know what? Women make better rollers than men. So we're going to incorporate more women. And partially it was because they were looking to give jobs to a lot of women back then. And so he found the best of the best and made them rollers. And initially, I think there were hundred percent female um and the Cohiba brand was born but you have to remember from 1966 until the brand actually went commercial in like 82 you couldn't buy a Cohiba. It was only given by Fidel and to
1: dignitaries. So, so yeah, go ahead. Well let me ask you this then if if when Cuba eventually gets rid of communism and and w- will the people get rid of cuz right now Cohiba is synonymous with Cuban cigars right now. Cohiba is arguably the flagship brand of Habanos S.A. Mm-hmm. So this if true. if communism goes away, will Cohiba go away? Will the people be like, no, no, no? Cohiba is synonymous with with Castro, and we don't want anything to do with that. Will that brand go? Well, if that's true what about general cigar
2: that owns the rights to cohiba oh, and that's a whole nother topic how they won legally a battle and you know, they should they ended have. up i don't think they should have because I, yeah no you know, the u.s cohiba brand name was registered in the united states by general cigar in 1978. now remember i'd said that it didn't come out commercially For sale to the public till 1982.
1: No, but everybody knew what Cohiba was.
2: Oh yeah, everybody knew what the name was, the allure. So they went and registered it, and they legally owned the rights to it in the United States. You know, now there was there's been a whole battle, a legal battle that I just look all the other brands. I get it. You know, Jaime Partagas family, they left, they took the Partagas brand. You know, will they the ba- well, they want these. they want these
1: names back. Like, let's pretend well, communism. They, well, they goes have away. though.
2: Yeah, they they do want them back, and they. But that's an easier thing that's going to happen because the way that you know everything you think is so? going. You know, I do, I do. Um, I don't see that it's going to be like right now. You know, Altitus, which was owned by Imperial, which is now owned by the Spanish holding company. Nope owns 50% of Cuba tobacco. They happen to own the brand, Monte Cristo, uh, H up and, and others, you know um, what I call legacy uh, brands. Yeah. What I call legacy brands and and, and, uh, STGs, the Scandinavian tobacco group, you know, they own Cohiba and Partagas and, and the other ones. So somehow there's going to be some arrangement, you know, worldwide, you know, STG owns the rights to Partagas and Cohiba outside of
1: Cuba. Um, I'm saying in the U S you I'm think totally there'll be with, a, you, yeah. you think there'll be some kind of arrangement. Well, I mean, if Altitus owns do. 50% of Habanos SA and well, they own new company. Yeah. Yeah. And they own what they own Monte Cristo. And no, no, no money. Yeah. They own Monte Cristo and a bunch of others. They yeah. And Chuck a bunch them. of others. I like get, that would be a easier kind of meld, um, I guess. I don't know the, you know, STG owns quite a number of them too. Oh, yeah. So I just, I don't, I don't. I, I don't know either. I, I think that's an interesting conversation about the future of, of Cuban cigars. But for the history, that it became for new cigar smokers. I can only speak to my personal experience. You know, you walk into a cigar shop and you look as a new cigar smoker. And you see Cohiba and you see Monte Cristo and you see uh, Partagas and you see H. Upman and you're like, oh, okay. Well, these have been around for a while. Like I've heard of these. I'll. It's not what you've heard of it's not what you've heard of at all. And it's a completely different tobacco. And unless you are informed, especially as someone who's brand new, I'm talking two or three months into the, into the hobby. You have no idea. You're just like, okay, well, whatever these must be. I didn't think you could sell Cubans. (laughs) What? You can't sell Cubans kid. Like this is, these are, these are, uh, these are Nicaraguan or these are Dominican or these are whatever. And it's like, Oh, well now I'm just confused. So I, I, I like, there's going to be a reckoning at some point where they're all going to come together. And I think the future of Cuba, it'll be interesting to see to hear your take on it. I think we may have talked about it before, but we'll talk about that uh, in a later episode. But yeah, I mean, Cohiba is, is, is synonymous with, with Cuba. I, I I feel like the Cuban people would be like, eh, that was Castro's thing. We don't want it anymore.
2: Uh, it right now it's a, it's their pride and joy. That's the brand that everybody knows. Like I said, you walk down the streets of Cuba smoking a, a cigar and everybody will come up to you, oh, cohiba, cohiba. Like, that's their way of saying, do you smoke in a cohiba? You know, and usually I just nod my head. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't, it's just not <laughs> even worth getting into a conversation about it. But that's their limited knowledge of what, to them, the word cohiba and cigars go together. Mm. They think every cigar is a cohiba or they don't know anything about cigars. And that's the word that's become so synonymous where cigars in Cuba are synonymous, the word Cohiba and cigars are synonymous for Cuban cigars. That's their pride and joy. You know, the brand that was launched by Cuba Tobacco in 1968, their marketing bureau anyway, they knew what they were doing. They made this super premium blend. Um, and this guy, Avelino Laura, who at the time was the head of the Lugido factory, said, You know what? We want you to make only a few thousand boxes. We want you to use the best tobacco aged and reserve you know these these tobaccos and uh, cigars for these high government officials and they're just mainly given away as diplomatic gifts but the Cohiba brand was launched in the U outside of the US in 1982 um, and then from there it just took off everybody wanted it um, and that's where it became so well known but 1992, is when Habanos SA uh, was launched. And that is the co op company that was part of Cuba Tobacco and Altitus, their little co op that was formed. So um, cigars can continue to be made properly because there was a period of time during the, you know, what they call the special period of Cuba, uh, where things, uh, you know, Not so great. You know, the demise of the (laughs) Soviet Union really hurt the Cuban economy. Uh, Aid dried up and Cuban cigars, they diminished in consistency and the overall quality went really, really down, especially in the 80s. And it wasn't until like the 90s that things started to improve. Um, It was so bad that they were using petroleum-based fertilizer that not only was terrible, it was killing the soil. So it took so many years for that soil to come back. So they were cutting corners. They didn't know. And they just wanted to produce and make money. And they were doing the wrong thing. And it's taken decades for the soil to recover. And it's it's doing fine now. Uh, you You alluded to the construction of Cuban cigars. Yes. Unfortunately, I do believe that that is the one area that they really, really need to improve on because the rest of the world has greatly surpassed them in that area. And I think it's, even people that love Cuban cigars can attest to, you know, buying a box of Cohibas. Well, maybe not as much with Cohibas, but at least with most of these other brands. And it's not unusual to have 10, 15, maybe even 20% of the box be literally unsmokable yeah. because of the construction issues. And it just shouldn't be, but quality control. That's all they need to do. But, you know, you need to pay people properly and you need to have the right checks and balances in place. And uh, then you wouldn't have these problems. I mean, I think they're aware of it. Um, they literally just made a big change in the the director of quality control, Oscar Rigotto, uh, actually somebody that I'm familiar yeah. with and friendly with. But, He's you know, making a change
1: that high up, like how long does it take for change to actually get implemented? in the factories, I guess would be, well, be my, my question. And are they still cutting corners? Is that why we're seeing 10, 15%, 20% of boxes being unsmokable? Because they're cutting corners and they're trying to get the, I mean, look, we've talked it before. No, I think you they're, and I, they're
2: not cutting corners in the sense that where they're cutting corners is they're not, they don't have the proper checks and balances of using their draw machines or having supervisors go through and check, and you know, basically rejecting these cigars. I mean, there's crazier things where they'll put the bands upside down and boxes upside I mean, things that are just getting through the system that just shouldn't be done. But, you know, nobody's really checking on that. And and the reason is they're all in a rush to produce the cigars they have to produce. Their yeah. friends are the ones that are being the supervisors, and they're not, you know, they, they don't want them to work harder, so they're not kicking them back. And a lot of these cigars fall by the wayside and get put into these boxes that should never be. So yes, can it get better? Absolutely. It needs to get better. But I think they're aware of it and they know it. They just have to figure out how to implement it for sure.
1: I I guess, I, I mean, right now, and this is across the board everywhere, like cigar prices have gone up. I think you've you've seen that as well. I mean, it's just, this is the world we live in right now. It's well, the lo- transportation of absolutely. the tobacco, yeah. there, there's so many elements, you know, like, but, the but, rest,
2: like every other industry in the world is affected
1: by absolutely. Price, you know? Like inflation is up everywhere. And, and I understand that, but Cuban cigars specifically have gone up. Uh, And I don't know if we're going to talk about this later on. I'm looking I'm looking further ahead and I don't see it. So I I figure this is probably as good a time as any to talk about it. But the secondary market for Cuban cigars, especially here in the United States, uh, it drives it seems to be driving the prices in the primary market, the first market uh, for uh, Cubans up. And and what I mean by that is there are auction sites and I'll mention one by name because I don't give a shit. uh, Bond Roberts where boxes yeah, of, both of friends of mine nice yes yeah, guys of, of of cigars that were rolled in 2018 2019 20 are being auctioned off <laughs> for one and a half two times the amount that they were purchased for and and that seems to be like now habano says hey i feel like they have noticed this and they're like oh well it, it seems like we can raise our prices and people are still going to buy it and that seems to be what they've done Well, they haven't
2: doubled their prices, which, you know, in some cases, you know, especially on the auction sites, they've doubled. Oh, yeah. Um, No, I don't think, I think like a business, you know, they could produce only X amount a year and then they can only increase X amount. But if it's just a basic business principle of supply and demand, if you have more demand, and you can't produce more, then you need to keep raising the price until you get to that point of resistance where people would say, oh, now that, that's, that's crazy. Now, I think they've way exceeded that point already, I do too. <laughs> but, but they keep raising the prices and they just keep raising them because right now with the Asian market for them, um, they could literally sell everything they make yeah. today to the Asian market and there'd be no cigars for the rest of the world. They can't do that. So how do you do it? You keep raising the prices until so everybody, you know, and unfortunately, you know, yeah, they're expensive. They're very expensive in these auction sites and collector sites and everything else. Everybody wants what they can't have. And that's the reality of life, especially Americans, I believe, you know, Uh, why do people chase, you know, like all these trends that we've had over the years and and, in Christmas, people trying to find the toys that nobody can get, the Cabbage Patch styles, the Tickle Me Elmo, the more it's in demand, the more people want it. And that goes to cigars. And that's another pet peeve of mine in this industry is how marketing really drives this industry more than it should, in my opinion. I mean, look, marketing is necessary and is part of every industry, but in my opinion, the quality of the cigar and how it tastes for you is what should really drive the sale of that cigar. If more people like the taste of this cigar or that cigar, then that cigar should go up the ranks in not only sales, but in, you know, opinion.
1: Well, let me, that's not how it works. Well, let me ask you this. You brought up marketing. So I'm going to talk about it. Uh, the, there was a month ago, two months ago I, at this point, I don't even remember where a certain Liga of club, like they come out with their cookie monsters and they come out with their, uh, other cigars that are, have this marketing around them. And JSK comes out with the, uh, uh, you know, the Rocky road. And then the PCA is like, you shouldn't be doing this. This is going to give us all kinds of bad of attention with the FDA. I don't like for me as a cigar smoker, I don't look at the bands like I did when I first started. I'll be honest. When I first would walk into a human room, I'd be like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. That band looks cool. I'll smoke that. <laughs> like I have no clue. But now that I've been, it's like, no, I don't look at the bands. I don't look at the marketing. And it's not like you can market pretty much anywhere other than the cigar magazine, cigar, aficionado, cigar snob, a cigar press. Like you, you can market there and you can have advertising there, but for the rest of the world, Nobody really sees this marketing. Do you have a problem? Like it because it kind of sounds like you don't like the direction some of this marketing goes. Yeah. I mean, do I have a problem?
2: If people are buying it, you know, I just shake my head. You mentioned the uh, Pravada Club. I mean, what clubs like them and others, they're buying leftovers, factory closeouts, whatever they can get their hands on. I'm not saying in every case, but this definitely is happening. And they're creating these. You know they've already gotten in trouble, and uh, they don't really care. They're making you know some things that shouldn't be marketed towards kids or uh, things of that nature. Uh, these these brand definitely license infringements on some of them, but so they're putting these crazy silly names on these cigars uh, or these bands that people and in contrary to what you said, yeah, people are buying it because of the band. I, talking to these uh, retailers, I'm in their stores every day. They're telling me, Nick, I know these cigars are terrible or inferior or not something I would normally smoke, but if I get 10 boxes this week, I could have sold 30 boxes. So these companies are doing an incredible marketing job and driving the traffic to the retailer, which is fantastic for the retailers because they didn't have to. They could have kept all the money for themselves. But I think some of the draw is getting it into the retailer's hands and building up the retailer uh, traffic, which is great. And that's why the retailers are not poo-pooing, you know, these, these uh, monthly cigar clubs and things like that, because they're kind of working hand in hand. Do you think they're marketing to kids specifically? No, I don't no, think the yeah. marketing is to no. kids, but it can be perceived as that because they're of a, a more immature or uh, smaller uh, to the outside world it looks like we're marketing when outside of the cigar industry, it looks like if they see a cigar and it says, you know, cotton candy, you know, or porky pig or something like that. What is somebody that knows nothing about the cigar world or industry and see something like that? They're going to think, Oh my God, this is directly marketed to kids. And that's how the FDA is going to view it and how the rest of the world is going to view. it.
1: That's where my issue with it lies is right where you said people outside of the cigar world, looking at it and going, oh my God, you're marketing to kids, right? These products, in my opinion, my humble opinion, which doesn't amount to a fucking hill of beans in this world, uh, is that Provada Club and, and some of these other folks are should never be in a grocery store. They should never be in a gas station. They should never be anywhere where kids can see them. They should be behind uh, the doors and the walls of a humidor in a lounge somewhere. That's where they should be. Now, look, I can't control what's online, and honestly, I don't care if you can't if you can't police your child uh, and what they look at on the internet well enough. Then, like whatever. But it's certainly not marketed towards kids. Yeah, but
2: here's the bottom line, James. In my opinion, the timing couldn't be worse. Right now, we're in the process of being, you know, with the FDA and their rulings and everything that's coming out. Why give them ammunition? You know, even if it's not rightfully so. I mean. It looks; its appearances is everything. You know, it doesn't matter if it was the intent is not for that little kid that's yeah. going to go to a supermarket, but to the appearance, to the outside world, we're just look as cigar smokers. We have to be citizens of this place we call planet Earth, so we have to get along with everybody else. Now we are our own subculture for sure, but if somebody looks at us and says, "Oh, look, that guy has a band on it that has Porky Pig," that should be a that's that's more, looks like it's marketed for kids. That may not be true, but it looks like that, and therefore the FDA is going to use that as ammunition
1: let me, on these on on these brands. Let me let me let me pause it to you this way, because, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna compare it to alcohol because I have had in my uh, illustrious uh, collegiate career, uh, several professors say, if mankind knew the effects of alcohol when they first found it, they would have immediately forgot about it because it's so terrible for the human body. And the same, uh, the same, it's it's doctors or (laughs) right. But But that's the same uh, with cigars, right? It's not, uh, or with smoking in general. At what point do we just let adults make adult decisions? right and that's kind of the way i look at the fda is like i don't need a babysitter like i don't need the government in my humidor i don't need them in my bedroom i don't look, need
2: I, I agree with you 100 i'm not for the fda the fda has no business you know that's a whole we could do a whole show uh, uh, just about uh, the uh, fda and, and how they have they really should have no business being in the cigar world at all yeah. you're talking about a product that is handmade that is very organic and how can you regulate something as long as you're not putting okay the whole take and not to disparage flavored cigars? But if you're not in if you're not putting chemicals or additives to a cigar, it's right. a natural product, then the only description that should be there is tobacco leaf right. grown in X country, using maybe this seed, because that's about all that. It, it's about, you know, yeah. it, there's nothing else. So how they want to get involved because it's tobacco and how bad it is. And, uh, you know, no one's going to tell you it's a healthy habit, but there's no statistical, you know, no. evidence that's out there that says that it does the same type of, it should not be lumped in to the same category as
1: you know uh cigarettes or or these other no, categories I, I i i don't disagree but what, I, what i'm saying is is at what point do we stop worrying about what everybody else thinks and just be like look i don't disagree with you on the marketing at all like i don't like the marketing of Provada club i don't like the marketing uh for example of drew estate and their when they do their graffiti because that's what they call it they don't call it cartoons they call it graffiti mm-hmm. I, I i don't like that it's the same thing Right, like it's flashy, it's colorful, it's a cartoon. It, like kids are gonna go, "Ooh, what's that?" Right, I, and so I get it. I don't, but they're not marketing to me. I am an old, crusty guy who doesn't give two shits about pop culture anymore because I'm just too damn old. But they're marketing to the younger, hipper crowd uh, in their in their twenties who are starting to have some disposable income, and I get it. And they don't have to market to market it to me, and I don't have to like it, and. I, for me, because I'm outside of the industry, I just talk to the guys in the industry like you and I I, I try to, you know, bring my opinion in it because, again, my opinion doesn't matter at all. But I don't care what these guys do because they're not on the corner selling it to kids. It's not it's not weed. It's not THC. It's not vape. It's not a cigarette. Kids aren't breaking down the door you know, to get into a fucking humidor to get shit. So I just have a real problem with it overall. And I just don't like the whole censorship aspect of it. If I don't want the government to censor me, I certainly don't want other companies to censor me.
2: Does well, know well, me- very soon with the FDA's, uh, you know, right now they're going to ban menthol cigarettes and yep. the next phase is going to be all flavored cigars. And should that be, I don't know. I don't particularly like flavored cigars because flavored. So if you're adding something to a cigar as in flavor an outside infusion, then what difference or what matter does it, who cares what the leaves are? It could be paper because right. you're not going to get any of that. You're getting just the flow, the overall abundance of this infused flavor. But some people think that they need, especially newer cigar smokers, and a lot of people are geared I don't like I haven't seen it to be honest but you know you go into a um, you know tobacconist or a cigar store and you say oh, I never smoked the cigar and they'll take them over. Uh to a flavored cigar I and I'm hate like, oh that. my God. Why that do is a you do bad that? Move. That is a bad move. I do the exact opposite yeah. where I see somebody come in and ask for a flavored cigar. And I try to lead them down the correct path, as I like to say, to take them away <laughs> from the additive flavor right. of that cigar and try to get an experience and try to look for those as, as hard as it is in the beginning to pick up these flavors for some people that have never smoked a, a cigar before. But once they do, once they do, it's like riding a bike. You know, the first time you're going to fall, you're going to wobble. You're not going to be able to ride. Some people do it faster. Why can some people jump on a bike they've never ridden and within 10 seconds, they're riding a bike like a pro and other kids, maybe they take weeks to learn and they have the training wheels. But at the end of the day, everybody can get there. It's just a matter of listening, hearing, figuratively, of course, to your tastes buds to your 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 nasal passages to be able to pick up those nuances of those notes and those flavors and this like I always talk about how cigars are so so similar to to wine and the whole wine industry not it has nothing to do with cigarettes or in my opinion flavored cigars cuz that's a flavored cigar in my opinion I don't care in my opinion if you're using great tobacco and then you're adding you know uh, coffee flavors why bother Because you're not going to, it's going to, it's going (laughs) to totally overwhelm and it's not not even going to get there. It's useless and there's no reason for it. But yeah, I'm not a fan of flavored cigars personally, but there, I will say this. At first I was anti, you know, the whole acid thing and Drew Estates. I've, I've gained so much respect and learned so much about this industry, about this industry through Jonathan Drew and Drew Estates. Because they do care, and they have done a lot for this industry. And one of the things, okay, their cash cow is the acid brand and their flavored cigars. Well, what it's done for this industry, you know, a byproduct of it, and maybe this is the part that the FDA has a problem with. You know, these people are getting into cigar smoking with a flavored cigar, which they may may never jump into because they don't get it. And the flavored cigar, if it's it's, oh, it's Java, it's this, they're buying those cigars. And they're like, oh, I get the flavors. And then at some point they want to make that crossover, that transition. Let's say they're in their twenties or whatever point they think, okay, you know what? Let me, let me put my big boy pants on and let me try a real premium cigar and venture into that side of the world. Eventually it gets there. So we've gotten a lot of new cigar smokers from those people that initially were only smoking acids and the flavored cigars so what's going to happen if the acid brand and all flavored cigars go away it's going to make for less people entering the industry yeah, and your cigar and the, smokers overall so yeah so it's going to diminish or maybe less well, the amount of people coming in possibly
1: maybe you know? but,
2: but to bring this I, to bring I this i
1: could live with that i i i think i, I don't I don't know if I care enough whether I can live with it or not, but I to bring well, this. What I mean is, you know, yeah, maybe there'll be less cigar smokers,
2: but then things will happen. Phenomenons will happen. Like the cigar aficionado boom of the nineties was because of one magazine that this yeah. whole industry saw this crazy boom. Who knows what the next boom oh, will absolutely. be for the cigar industry. 100%.
1: Know? And that was going to be my point to bring this back to the, the history of Cuban cigars for. Uh, you know, it's all cyclical. It's all we all go in. It goes in a cycle where this is in fashion, this is out of fashion, this is in fashion, it's out of fashion. Cigars are are, are not immune to that. Uh, kings have tried to get people to stop smoking cigars uh, for centuries, and it hasn't. It, here we are in you know the year of our Lord 2022, and we're still smoking cigars. Uh, uh You know, you can try to regulate it as much as you want. I I promise you, in the year 3022. Uh, unless we've all blown ourselves to hell, uh, we'll still be smoking cigars. So, or maybe even if we have blown ourselves to hell, maybe it'll just be, you know, radioactive cigars. I don't know, but they'll be around. I think that's where we're going to end it on that terrible disappointment. Uh, Nick oh. Sirius, what? go ahead.
2: Oh, no, no, it's Okay.
1: I mean, we've we've gone on
2: our history of of Cuban cigars was more about talking about cigars in general. Uh, There was a couple of points just towards the end. I did want to talk about, even if it's just to kind of close the whole cigar, the Cuban cigar history. I mean, you know, I started to talk about the 80s and they had a huge crop failure. The 1980 blue mold plant disease wiped out almost the entire crop. So that happened. Um, The nineties, we had Altitus buying 50%, which I touched upon with Habanos. Um, Things changed. Then you had now, you know, Altitus was bought by Imperial Tobacco and that that happened in 2008. They realized they didn't want to be in the premium premium cigar business. They just sold it. I think it's been a year ago, year and a half ago. I mean, it was going on forever and it was during the pandemic and some unknown um, ownership based out of Asia purchased uh the altitus interest which represents 50% you know of habanos which is oh. the cuban cigar period you know so i don't know that's kind of where it ended um things i think it'll be interesting to see where the history of cuban cigars go from here on that's going to be the uh you know we talked briefly about the prices but how can that continue
1: can they make more cigars do they, yeah. they have enough tobacco I think it's, it's going to it's, be like uh, everything else. It's a bubble, right? And as soon as all the bubbles burst, this bubble will burst too, and things will start to come back to normal. At least I hope. Because, I mean, I haven't, I'll be honest with you, Nick. I, I, when I first started, I was buying Cuban cigars uh, quite a bit because I really did enjoy the flavor. I, I think they are some of the best cigars when they're rolled right. They're some of the best cigars on the planet. And there's nothing quite like it. And I don't think... They are I, unique, I I, unique. I have not bought a a box of Cuban cigars. I haven't bought a Cuban cigar since 2019,
0: mm.
1: and, and well, it's it's all just it's all been uh, you know New World cigars, non Cuban cigars, uh, and honestly, I I have found a deeper love and appreciation for Cuban cigars through not smoking them as much as I was. And when I do pull one out of the, what I affectionately call the commie door, um, uh, I'm i like, okay, this is, I, I I remember what this is. And like I talked about at the top of the show, which was oh so long ago where, you know, you can't always go back. And I, you know, tried that Monte Cristo white series for the uh, cigars and coffee. I don't get that with Cuban cigars, with Cuban cigars, I get it. In fact, now that I've been smoking non-Cuban cigars, I can pick out the nuances of that Cuban cigar more than I could before I can pick out the complexities and I I can appreciate that. What, you know, what aficionados call the twang, um, because it is unique and it is different. Is it better? Hmm. Oh, maybe. Uh, but, but it's definitely unique. And, but I'll be honest with you. And I'm I'm saying this just because you are, you are an owner of a non-Cuban cigar. I, I would rather smoke a Claro, uh, nine times out of 10 than any Cuban. And, and well, I, I, I,
2: I like my cigars as well, but I also like, I mean, I, I smoke everybody's cigars. I literally smoke yeah. every cigar out there and that includes Cuban cigars. I do enjoy Cuban cigars. Like I said, they're a very unique um, type of tobacco that is very distinctive. I can, you know, there's, I have this group of friends that they always try to stump me can you pick out the Cuban cigar, Cuban non Cuban? They <laughs> right. do, and literally, I I used to think that you know, and and I would say um in, in the nineties, high nineties, I've been stumped a few times where I'm not exactly sure if they were real Cuban or not, but. The point is I can just <laughs> taste that tobacco and I know a Cuban yeah. tobacco when I taste it. Um, but that's all part of the learning process and learning about different tobaccos. I can identify a lot of different tobaccos and sometimes you get stumped, but a lot of times you get the general gist, you know, of, of where that tobacco originates.
1: Like you, uh, yeah, no, like I, I can pick out that it's tobacco. Not can, really what from. Uh, right. My palate's shit Nick Sirius LH Cigars Thank you so much uh, for sharing us uh, with us Your expertise uh, we'll, we'll be back uh, at the beginning of, of June I'm trying to think Man, because it's what It's it's April 29th, 28th I don't even know what the 29th, hell day it is 29th. Yeah, uh, so we'll be back So this will go out on May 1st We'll be back June 1st uh, With another uh, episode of our uh, Cuban sub-series Where we're going to talk about the innovators of Cuban cigars I, And you mentioned some earlier where they brought in just women to 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 roll the cigars we'll we'll talk about that and who knows what else we're going to talk about next year's lh cigars thank you so much for your time i appreciate it welcome join us next time we talk about innovators of cupid cigars and everything else that that goes along with cigars and cigar culture until then friends stay smoky
0: thank you for listening to simply stogies visit Simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content and please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, Please send an email to info at simplystogies.com.